uh, I know a lot of you are familiar with Beeson Divinity School through some of the uh, the groups that we have had come up here, and I was uh, I was working with them a little bit, and uh, but it is always a pleasure to be back. My wife sends greetings. Uh, she is not here because um, our two children are both running a fever. They're both sick, so she stayed with them. Uh, she sends her love and. She misses you guys. Uh, don't take it personally if I don't give you a hug today. I'm actually running a fever. Uh, so that's why I was doing the elbow bumps uh, during, uh, during greeting time. Um, so I'm not going to hug anybody. Try not to give you what I have. Um, before we uh, dive into the text, uh, I'd like just to spend a couple of minutes praying. Um, as, uh, for those of you who are residents of New York State, we have an opportunity to vote uh, this Tuesday. And uh, voting is an important privilege in a democratic society. When the Bible was written, it was written to cultures that actually did not have the right to vote. Uh, But that is something that we get to uh, enjoy and exercise that privilege. And the Bible talks about how important it is to pray for our leaders. And I think we could probably apply that to our uh, future leaders as well. We don't yet know who they are. Uh, But there's, I think, five people currently still running for president. Uh, and um, we don't know who it's going to be. But we have a responsibility as Christians to honor them and to pray for them. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, to do that now. Lord Jesus, uh, we know that you are the King of Kings. You are high and lifted up. You are sovereign. You are on the throne. And uh, you are in charge of raising up and putting down world leaders. Uh, you did it in Israel. You did it in Babylon. You did it in ancient Rome. You've been doing it in America ever since this country was started. Lord, we ask that as we go to the polls this Tuesday and our friends and our family and our coworkers in the city and throughout the state, as we go to the polls, that we would think seriously and deeply and biblically about the choices before us. God, most of all, we pray that you would raise up those who would be a blessing. Your word says that um, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And God, we pray that uh, we, we know that none of these people are our Savior. None of them are our Messiah. You alone are that. Um, but we know that you use people. You speak through people. You raise people up for your purposes. And we ask that your will would be done this Tuesday in our hearts as we choose to vote and uh, throughout our state. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we are going to continue our sermon series in Ephesians called One in Christ. I think we've got about uh, four more sermons uh, in this series before we, before we wrap up. One in Christ, uh, title of my message today is Let It Go. Let It Go. Now, some of you may be thinking of a Disney uh, song. And uh, you're right. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Let it go. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 17. Uh, I'm reading from the New International Version. If you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, I'd encourage you to follow along. Uh, The words will be on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, uh, you can can look up here. Ephesians 4, 17. Paul said, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught... With regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Woodley kind of set the table for the entire second half of the book of Ephesians. For several weeks, right, we covered the first three chapters of Ephesians, and it's, it's these grand and glorious truths about God, about what he's done, about this thing called the church that he died to create. There are these incredible, majestic, makes you want to sing truths. But chapter four kind of pivots, and Woodley explained to us this thing called the indicatives and the imperatives. How many of you remember that? All right, so just to recap in case you have forgotten. So the indicatives are the things that God has done. This is what is. The imperatives are the things that God has told us to do. This is what is supposed to be if we obey. So we're in that section where there's a whole lot of imperatives. In fact, I want to show you a list. Imperatives for the church, um, all from this passage. I, list, I counted up. Maybe 11, maybe 12, depending on how you, uh, how you divide them. One is don't live like the Gentiles, verse 17. Lay aside the old man in verse 22. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind in verse 23. Put on the new man in verse 24. Speak the truth in verse 25. Deal with your anger in verses 26 and 27. Stop stealing, start working in verse 28. Speak wholesome words in verse 29. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in verse 30. Put away divisiveness in verse 31. And in verse 32, forgive. So it's kind of like uh, Paul has loaded his shotgun with some, with some buckshot, right? And he's just spraying. He's just spraying it all over the place. He's got a whole bunch of imperatives. He's, he's, for three chapters, built this painstaking case for the grandeur and the majesty and the glory of God and everything that he has done in our lives and specifically what he has done in the church to make it this body that is in Christ. Remember, we've talked about how that phrase, to be in Christ, is so crucially important. It's mentioned 36 times in this brief letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus. And he goes to great pains to explain that we are in Christ. Meaning that at the cross, for every person who is a follower of Jesus, at the cross, we are united with Jesus in his death. And we are raised from the dead with him in his resurrection. So that when God looks at you, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't see someone who is a sinner. He sees someone who has been transformed, someone who has been cleaned up by grace because they are in Christ. And not just that, but there's this collective sense to it. Throughout the book of Ephesians, it almost always is referring to this idea that we are in Christ together. It's the church that's in Christ. To be in Christ is to be in the church. To be in the church is to be in Christ. Paul doesn't view it as any sort of distinction. So these are imperatives for the church. And Paul just, he's just throwing them out there. Rapid fire, one after the other. Don't live like the Gentiles. Lay aside the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man. Speak the truth. Don't be angry. Stop stealing. Start working. Speak wholesome words. Don't breathe the Holy Spirit. Don't be divisive and then forgive. It's like every verse almost has an imperative. And some of them seems like they have two or three. So Paul has moved on from this section where he's, laying this groundwork and laying this foundation. And now he's going in and he's going in hard to explain to us on the basis of all of those indicatives, on the basis of what God has done. Now here's what you as a church in Ephesus are supposed to do. Two important things to point out about that. One is it's based on what God has done. Remember, Woodley talked about how the indicatives fuel the fire that enables us to do the imperatives. All of these commands are, are pretty weighty things. Things that you and I would struggle every single day to live up to. Deal with your anger. Anybody here gotten angry this week? Or today? No, I wasn't asking for a show of hands, but thank you for your honesty. Um, um, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Speak the truth. Anybody stretched it this week? Stop stealing, start working. Speak wholesome words, only words that edify and build up. 
said anything critical this week? Don't be divisive. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We, we grieve the Holy Spirit with any of our sins. And to forgive like God has forgiven us. This is a tall order. In fact, it's an impossible task. This list of imperatives is impossible for us to accomplish apart from the work of Jesus that's described in chapters 1 through 3. There is this incredible power that we have that was described at the end of chapter 3. A power working in us so that we would comprehend the love of God. And when we comprehend the love of God, it transforms us and enables us to do this superhuman, supernatural stuff that God calls us to do. There's no other way to do it. You can summon up all the willpower in the world. You can, you can devise 12 steps and, and put on your game face. But you're not going to be able to live out these imperatives apart from rooting yourself in those wonderful indicatives from chapters 1 to 3. That's why we didn't just start our series here in chapter 4 and start preaching about forgive, love your wife, you know, uh, parent your kids well. That's, that's what we're going to get, some of those commands that we're going to get to in chapter 5. We're going to just dive right in with the commands, but Paul wrote it in this order for a reason. So that's the first thing to understand. Second thing is that these are imperatives for the church. They're not just imperatives for you as an individual. They are imperatives for us as a family, for us as a, as a collective, because it is the church that is in Christ, and it is the church that is called to live this way. So, with that background, let's dive right in. I want to show you guys a picture. Okay, so how many of you have seen the movie Frozen? All right. Come on, Woodley. There we go. Um, so, as a dad of a three-year-old daughter, I have seen the movie Frozen probably conservatively estimating about 52 or 53 times. Um, I know most of the songs by heart. I'm not going to sing them uh, for you, but um, <clears throat> Malia can if you ever want her to. I think uh, another one of the pastors here might be able to as well. Um, that, was, that was for Woodley, in case you weren't sure. Um, so uh, Elsa, this is Elsa in the movie, and I'm not going to spoil it for you in case you really desire to get out there and watch it one day. Um, uh, but Elsa sings this song called Let It Go. And you, chances are, even if you've not seen the movie, you have probably heard on the radio, whether it's in the bodega or whether it's um, uh, you're listening to Spotify and a commercial comes on or you're driving your car, uh, you have probably heard some of these lyrics before. And so she's out there, she's in the snow, and she's building this ice castle, and she's just singing, let it go, let it go, let it go. Um, and that's really the point that Paul is driving home very clearly in this passage. Let it go. I don't think Paul would necessarily endorse the theology of, of this song. When you read the lyrics, um, and actually Sonia and I have actually changed a few of the lyrics uh, as we sing them with Malia, because we're like, Actually, we don't believe in that. Um, so I'm not saying that Paul is down with everything that Elsa sings. But the basic point, the basic point is letting it go. So what does that look like in this passage? Well, I want to show you my big idea. The big idea that I think this passage conveys is that we can let go of sin because of what God has done for us. It goes back to that, that whole indicative and imperative thing, right? We can let go of sin. We have the ability to let go of sin because of what God has already done for us. That's how we can actually have the ability to obey the command, let it go. So maybe you're sitting here and you're not sure that you're a Christian. You're not sure about your walk with God. You're exploring, you're seeking, you're, you're probing, you're discovering. And I say that's great. That's a great place to be. And I want Mosaic to be that safe place where you can explore who Jesus is and what he says. But you might, you might read some of these imperatives and maybe you're like, there's no way I can do this. And I would agree. I would agree. These imperatives are so hard, so tough. Only a miracle can pull it off in my life where I can forgive. 
Only a miracle can pull it off in my life where I don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Only a miracle can pull it off in my life where I'm not divisive. You see, it's what Jesus has already accomplished that lays the groundwork for an ongoing miracle in my heart and in my life that is accomplished by the fact that he is doing and working me because I'm one of his children. I'm in his family. I'm in Christ. I'm in that, that church, that body. Therefore, he commits himself to an ongoing daily miracle in my heart. Think about that for a second. The holy God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, has committed himself to a daily, ongoing miracle in my heart and in your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is incredibly good news. We can let go of sin because of what God has done for us. I've got two points. Sermon's not very complicated. Two basic ideas that I want to look at in this passage. First off, is we have to let go of the old way of life. We have to let go of the old way of life. Look back at verse 17. If you can put that on the screen, Sean. It says, so I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now let's stop right there. We'll, we'll keep reading, but I want to stop right there. Paul is writing to a church, uh, one of the first churches that would have been multi-ethnic, meaning that it was Jew and Gentile. Because Christianity started out, the first churches were entirely Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. His first 12 apostles were Jews. It took them a little while to start reaching out cross-culturally and reach other people. Ephesus was one of those first churches that was ethnically mixed, culturally mixed. But it was still predominantly Gentile. Okay, So there's a, a smattering of Jews in this church. We know that from Acts 19. But predominantly, most likely, this church is Gentile. And so Paul is writing to them, and he's talked about Jew-Gentile relations and cultural interchange in, in chapter 2. And he says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord... That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. What does he, what does he say? He's, he's speaking to a group of people who used to identify as Gentiles. Okay? So in the ancient world, the, the way of thinking would have been uh, you have Jews who worship, they practice monogamy. I'm sorry, not monogamy. Well, they did that too. They practiced monotheism. I don't know why I said that. Um, we, can, uh, we can tell Sonia. She'll, she'll hear it on the recording. They did practice monogamy. And that was important, but they practiced monotheism, okay? The Gentiles practiced polytheism. They worshipped all of these variety of gods. And uh, Greek and Roman culture had this whole pantheon of gods. And what the Greeks would do, what the Gentiles would do, is they would come in and the Roman soldiers would, would take over a town. And they would say, you can keep your god so long as we add our gods to it. Because they knew that this was a way to keep order in the empire, Okay? So you've got the Jews, they're practicing, let me see if I can say it right, monotheism. They're worshiping one God, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. And then you have the, Jew, the, the Greeks and the Romans, and they're practicing polytheism, worshiping many gods. And they don't really care as much about it. For the Greeks and the Romans, it's more a political thing. How do we, how do we keep people under our heel using religion? And so a bunch of these Gentiles, a bunch of these folks who were not followers of the God of Israel had become converted. They had become Christians. And so they come in and they start learning an alternative lifestyle. They start learning a different way of life. But their, their friends, their family, their co-workers are still in the city of Ephesus and they're living this old lifestyle. Paul said, I tell you this, and in fact, I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You've given up this life. He said, in the futility of their thinking is how they are living. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, this is probably why I said monogamy, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. So, so you've got this Jewish culture that's trying to live this morally upright, uh, sort of strict-ish way of living that encompasses everything from their sexual ethics to the way they handle money. And then the, the Gentile cultures, they're just doing all of these different things. But the fact is, they were both wrong. Because 
The Jews were operating under a sense of moralism, a sense of what we sometimes call legalism. We're going to earn God's favor by being good people. The problem was they couldn't measure up. They were trying to do the imperatives apart from the indicatives, apart from what Jesus had done. And then the Gentiles, they were just living this libertarian lifestyle, whatever, whatever goes, whatever, whatever makes me feel good, whatever God will approve of my behavior, that's the God I'm going to worship. That was their attitude. That was their perspective. And so their eyes of their hearts were darkened. They've given themselves over to all kinds of sensuality and sexual impurity. They are full of greed, it says. He says, but that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says, you remember when I planted that church in Ephesus and the church in Ephesus was started by Paul and some other guys. He says, you remember when we started that church, you remember the things that I told you. You remember how I told you about how important it was to live a certain way because no longer was any lifestyle accepted when we're, when we're in the church, when we're in Christ. There is a new ethical standard that trumps everything else. So whether you're a Jew coming in with a certain perspective about the law or you're a Gentile coming in with your myriad of, of gods and, and thinking that anything goes in your lifestyle, he says both of you are being corrected by the gospel you were taught that this is not the way to live any more. He says you were taught to put off your old self and to put on the new man. It's the idea of a, of a jacket. Now, <clears throat> the weather's kind of changing here in New York City, right? So um, you might walk out the door in the morning and you still need your colder coat because it's still just a little bit chilly. But then by, by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, man, I am hot, I am sweaty, I need to change my coat. Now, probably most of us don't walk out of the house with two jackets. But if you did, you would change coats at that moment, right? You put on your lightweight windbreaker or maybe not even wear a jacket at all because the weather is so beautiful. There is a transformation that occurs. You have put off the old and you have put on the new because... Something has changed in your life. What changed for these Gentiles, Paul said, is that, is that you were once outside the church. You were once separated from Jesus, but now you have been brought in. You are in Christ. You are part of this family. He has redeemed you by his blood. He has sacrificed himself for you. He has reconciled you to himself. You are in Keep in mind, when I'm talking about the church, I'm not talking about a building. Derwin Gray, we, we quoted him a few weeks ago when we showed his video. He said, the church is not a building you go to. It's a people on the go with Jesus. And Paul is saying, you are in the church. You are in Christ. Therefore, you are a different person. Therefore, act like a different person. You see, Paul doesn't just say, come on, man, man up. Quit messing around. Do this differently. He says, don't you know who you are? <laughs> you have this old self, but, but you're supposed to have this new self. And in verse 24, it says it's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There is this idea that the image of God, we've talked about this a lot, the Imago Dei is kind of repaired and rebuilt inside the church that this is where we truly get to see what humanity is supposed to look like as we are like God in his image, in true righteousness and holiness. That this is where we get to see what it's really all supposed to be about. And not just on Sundays. You know, we talk a lot about living life on mission and, and being out in the community and, and discipling one another throughout the week. That's as much church as this is here. And what we're seeing is that God calls us, not just for a couple of hours on Sunday, but throughout the week, to be putting off the old self and embracing the new man that Jesus has already made us to be at the cross. So Paul gives this kind of ringing cry 
to the church at Ephesus to let it go. To let go of this old way of life. He hit a number of different things in there. He talked about sexual impurity. Okay, that was one of the things that set the first church apart. That they were a church, as all the churches in the first century were, that were known, and I I said the word earlier, they were known for monogamy. They were known for a practice of being radically committed to the one that they had married. It was a totally different way of life. It was an alternative lifestyle that caught people's attention. They weren't greedy. He talks um, in verse, verse 19, he talks about how they are full of greed. But there was this church at Ephesus that wasn't craving power and money. It was in a rush to give it away. They were giving, not getting. They were blessing, not receiving. This was a church that was totally different from the city of Ephesus. He says, keep on letting it go. Let go of that old way of life because it's as you let go of that old way of life that you will rise to be this this body. Whitley preached on it last week. Uh, This body that is fitly joined, joined together, rising to become this beautiful thing that God is creating. It's the church. He's creating this beautiful body, this bride, this family. He's creating a masterpiece. And the only way that the masterpiece becomes the masterpiece is when we let go of the old way of life. We do it together. That's why we need one another. You and I don't have what it takes to to walk out into the world and to battle sin and to do it all on our own. No, I need you speaking truth into my life. You need me speaking truth into your life. We need one another if the masterpiece is truly going to be the masterpiece. We have to be committed to the family. So we let go of the old way of life. Second, We let go of sinful attitudes toward others. We let go of sinful attitudes toward others. Look at verse 25. Paul said, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in christ god forgave you so he starts off the second half of the passage by saying that we must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body Specifically, I think what he's talking about is this idea that we speak the truth to one another in the context of the family of God. We speak the truth to one another for we are all members of one body, he says. And then he quotes from one of the Psalms and he says, in your anger, do not sin. I think what this is a a reference to is this idea that in the body, in the family of God, sometimes we have opportunities to speak into one another's lives about sin that we have experienced. That's what he's talking about when he says, put away falsehood and instead speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all part of the same body. What are we speaking truth about? We're speaking truth about God's revelation from God's word. We are speaking the truth into one another's lives. That's one of the responsibilities of the family of God that we hold one another's feet to the fire. So he says, in your anger, do not sin. I think what he's talking about and This is kind of a hard verse to interpret, but I think what he may be talking about here is this idea that we can be angry over sin that has occurred within the family of God. Sin should make us angry, right? 
It grieves the Holy Spirit, so it should grieve us too. What Paul is describing is this context in which we deal with sin together. We speak the truth to one another in love, for we are all members of one body. And he says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. What he's saying, remember, the whole point of the book of Ephesians is to be united in the church for the sake of the gospel. So he's imagining this context in which there is sin in the midst, and he says... Let your anger only be for a time. Deal with this sin. Put away falsehood. Speak truth, for we are all members of one body. Speak the truth. Deal with sin. But don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't let the devil get a foothold in your church. Don't let him stir up divisiveness. Don't let him cause conflict. Stand for the truth. Speak to one another with love. Do not give the devil a foothold. And then he pivots, starts talking about a few other things. Most of this is all relational, okay? He says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem very relational. Paul apparently is writing to a church, and there are some people in the church who used to be uh, thieves. And he says, if you have been a thief, don't do it anymore. Instead, get a job, work, provide for yourself. Why? so that you can give. You need to do something useful with your own hands so that you may have something to share with those in need. Paul said the whole point of getting a job is so that you can give stuff to people, so that you can bless people because you're not a hoarder, you're not a receiver, you're a giver. Channeling the radical generosity of God, which was displayed at the cross when Jesus gave of himself and was sacrificed in our behalf. That is giving. Paul said, don't steal, work so that you can give away. I don't think Paul would be slamming people who are trying to find work and can't find work. I think Paul would understand economic tough times. But I think what Paul would say is that if there are jobs to be had and you're just choosing not to work, it's not a good thing. Paul said, you need to work, not so that you can hoard it, not so you can be rich and retire and go to Bermuda, but so that you can give your money away so that you can bless people in the name of Jesus. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Paul is talking again. This is a relational dynamic. That our words are building up of other people rather than tearing them down. Think about the last time that you were criticized that you know of. Did it hurt when you were criticized? Think about the last time you criticized somebody else. Do you think it hurt them? Maybe. Maybe just as much as it hurt you. He says, let's not be divisive. Let's not let this unwholesomeness that's tearing people down, let's not let that kind of stuff come out of our mouths. Instead, let's be one family. Let's be one body. Let's be the church. Let's be united. Let's do this thing. Let's build one another up. Paul would have been a person, I think, who believed in loyalty. Paul was definitely a person who believed in love. And I can imagine that that Paul had a policy of not saying bad things about one church to another church. And Paul dealt with a whole bunch of churches, right? But I don't think he went and planted the church in Ephesus and then went to Philippi and planted the church in Philippi. He was like preaching to the Philippians. He's like, man, you guys are awesome. You can't imagine how bad it is back in Ephesus, man. Those Christians in Ephesus, they are so whack. They are so messed up. And so then he goes and he preaches to Corinth, right? He's like, hey, Corinthians. You guys are amazing. I love you, Corinth. They are awful in Philippi. And, you know, Paul, Paul's not doing that sort of thing. He is building the body up in love. He knows that there are times to call out sin. He knows that there are times to correct. In fact, that's what he had just talked about. But it's not a, it's not a public humiliation. It is a loving, private confrontation, a loving rebuke. He says... Let's only speak what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. He just talked about giving with money, right? You get a job so that you can give money and bless people. 
He said, now he's talking about giving with your words. Blessing people with your words. There is this radical generosity that characterizes this part of this passage. Why? Because Jesus was someone who did this. Remember, his disciples were simply trying to learn what Jesus taught and imitate his behavior. This is what Jesus did. He literally gave of himself. He blessed people with his activities, with his words, with his very life, and with his death. Jesus was a giver. He says, you want to benefit those who listen and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In chapter 1, we talked about this sealing because Paul mentioned it back in chapter 1. That the Holy Spirit seals us. He puts, his, he puts his stamp upon those who are his children, upon those who are in Christ. And he secures them until the day of redemption so that they never must doubt whether or not they're going to make it, whether or not they're going to be in God's family in the end of days. But he said there is a sense in which you can grieve this Holy Spirit who has sealed you for that day of redemption. And what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Well, I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. Everybody know what grieving is? What, is? what does it mean to grieve? Somebody talk to me here. You ever grieved at a funeral? Okay. So what, is, what does it mean? What is grieving? To mourn? To be in pain over loss? To cry? To be hurt? You might grieve over many different things. A, a severed relationship or a lost loved one. Or maybe on a lighter level you grieve because the Nets didn't make the playoffs. We grieve about lots of different things. But there is this staggering realization that the Holy Spirit is grieved. He is hurt when we sin. Specifically, in context, I think he's saying that he is hurt when we sin against one another. Because this whole thing is relational. The second half of the passage is all about speaking the truth to one another dealing with our attitudes with one another, not being divisive toward one another, being building up of one another. And then he's about to start talking about forgiveness and bitterness and all of this stuff. And he says, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Yes, that same Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption, that same Holy Spirit who guaranteed your eternal salvation, that Holy Spirit who put you into the family of God, that Holy Spirit hurts when you sin against other members of his family. Why is that? Well, one possible reason is because the Holy Spirit moved heaven and earth to get them into the family too. The Holy Spirit moved heaven and earth to seal them for the day of redemption too. Sometimes we just think of Christianity as this, this personal thing between me and God and oh man, it's so amazing and lovely what he has done to get me into the family. But that person that you're mad at he did the same exact thing for them. To bring them into the family of God. And when God sees Christians fighting, when God sees a church divided, it grieves the Holy Spirit. I think every sin grieves the Holy Spirit, but I think what this passage is talking about is specifically when we are at odds with one another. It literally hurts the Holy Spirit. And then finally, these last two verses... He talks about forgiveness. Look at what he says, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. When it comes to letting go of sinful attitudes, I think letting go of anger and bitterness are maybe the hardest attitudes to let go of. But Paul here, he just says, matter-of-factly, this is what you do. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Now, uh, bitterness is, you know, when you've gotten angry and upset about something that's been done against you and you just, you chew on it, right? You marinate in it. And over time, that anger transforms to this all-consuming bitterness. You've got rage and anger, brawling. That's, that's like breaking out into violence. You're so mad at this person, you deck them when you see them in the street. 
And then just to make sure that Paul hasn't missed anything, he says, and every form of malice, any kind of ill will that you could have toward any other person, especially those who are also in Christ, he says, get rid of all that. That's a bunch of junk. Get rid of it. He says, instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And here's the kicker. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. There's two important words that are our favorite words in this series are right there in the middle. He says, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Why am I forgiven? Because I'm in Christ. Why is this church forgiven? Because it is in Christ. And Paul says, you have been forgiven because you are in Christ. How can you not forgive someone else who is also in Christ? How can you hold on to the bitterness? How can you hold on to the anger? How can you hold on to the rage? How can you not let it go when that's what God has done for you because you are in Christ? You were united to him at the cross the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness means that we don't hold it over somebody else's head, what they've done. Has everybody here been wronged by somebody else? Raise your hand if you've ever been wronged. Okay. We've all wronged people too, right? We could raise our hands again for that. Um, But forgiveness, practically, what does it look like? It means that I don't hold it over your head anymore, what you have done to me. And you don't hold it over my head anymore, what I have done to you. That's hard. That's really hard. Again, it's impossible. These imperatives don't happen apart from the indicatives, apart from what Jesus has already accomplished. But forgiveness means that we don't hold it over their head any longer. Forgiveness also means that we trust God for a vindication. When I'm wronged, I normally want the person who has wronged me to understand just how much of a scoundrel they have been. I know they're totally in the wrong and I'm totally in the right, okay? At least that's how I feel. And let's face it, there are a lot of times when we are sinned against and we are not guilty at all. The other person, they're totally guilty. And, um, and then they ask for forgiveness. And I'm like, but I'm not done being angry. I want you to understand just how badly you have hurt me. Yeah, I know you're asking for forgiveness, but I don't want to do that yet. I don't want to do that yet. I want some vindication. I want you to go around at the office because you've been, you've been maligning me at the office. So I want you to go around and tell everybody how much of a scoundrel you were. Then I'll forgive you. You see, forgiveness doesn't do that. Forgiveness trusts God for vindication. The book of Genesis refers to God as the God who's the judge of all the earth, who does right. That means that at the end of days, the judge of all the earth will sort out all the good and the bad. He will see all of those wrongs that have been done against you, and he will see all the wrongs that you have done against other people. He's going to sort it all out. Sounds great if you are the um, offended party. Sounds downright scary if you're the one that has been doing the sinning. And frankly, I think we're going to be on both sides of that coin. Forgiveness means I don't have to be right. I don't have to put it out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever about how I'm right and all these other people are wrong and they're just idiots and they need to get with it. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I make someone grovel when they come back. And I try to make them pay for what they've done. No, forgiveness is is trusting God for vindication, saying, all right, this is in God's hands. I'm not holding it over their head anymore, and, and I'm trusting God to be the judge. I'm trusting God to be the vindicator. I'm trusting him to do what only he can do, and that's sorted out in eternity. I don't need 
to be proven right in the here and now. But forgiveness also means we love and bless those who hurt us. We love and bless those who hurt us. So forgiveness, I think true forgiveness is not just simply, oh, I forgive you. It's like actually developing a love and a commitment to bless those who have hurt us. Think about these three things in the life of Jesus. Did he do this? He was sinned against, right, at the cross when he was put up there wrongly. But he didn't hold it over our heads. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he trusted his Father for vindication, which came at the beginning at the resurrection. The resurrection is the vindication of God. And it will come again at the last days when Jesus comes back on a horse, takes over the world, sets up his kingdom, and reigns forever. He trusts his Father for vindication, and he loves and bless those who hurt them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And with his last breath, he chooses to love and to forgive. I'd like to end by telling you the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom um, lived in Europe during World War II. And uh, I'm actually going to read, it's kind of a long article, um, but I'm going to read about half of an article that she wrote. I'd like you to listen carefully. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far, far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, and again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. My sister Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. 
I knew I had to do it. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that. Corey Ten Boom was as wrong as any person could be wrong. But her sins were cast into the sea. And when confronted with her captor, whose sins had also been cast into the sea by the same God who had forgiven her, she knew there was really only one choice, to let it go. She couldn't do it, not at first. None of us can do any of these imperatives on our own. That is why we have to come to Jesus in faith, receiving his message of eternal life that he offers us to be united into his church. Because then, and only then, can we let stuff like this go. Let's pray.